0: Welcome to a Really Good Enough Parent podcast. My name is Christine Alpes. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and for 30 years I worked in intercountry and domestic adoption and family counseling. I'm the clinical director at Pono Roots Counseling Center, where our focus is on family systems, and I'm also a mother. I've created a Really Good Enough Parent podcast in response to what we see every day in our clinic. Childhood mental health issues are skyrocketing, and it doesn't have to be this way. I know that really good enough parenting is a skill we all possess. As a parent myself, I also understand how easy it is to lose sight and to mistrust or panic in the face of a melting down child or an impudent teen. The good news is that you have what it takes to help your child. Take a breath. See your child's innocence. You can do this. This podcast will feature some of the incredible people I've been lucky enough to meet in my life. No two have raised their children the same and all have done a really good enough job. You'll hear new perspectives on how to handle tough situations. You'll be reminded of how your own parenting takes its cue from childhood. And hopefully you'll feel invigorated to go do a really good enough job at this most rewarding of all human endeavors. A Really Good Enough Parent Podcast is designed to be story time for adults. So thanks for being here with me today. I do appreciate you. Enjoy the show. Coming up on A Really Good Enough Parent Podcast, I am so excited to be bringing to you my dear friend, and former boss, Howard Garval. Howard is currently semi-retired, living in Connecticut, where he started an organization called Leaders for Futures, which does leadership development and executive coaching for nonprofit leaders, something that Howard is very well versed in. Before that, Howard lived in Hawaii, where I was able to work for him as the president and CEO of Child and Family Services. He ran the largest nonprofit child and family service organization in Hawaii for 11 years. Before that, he was the president and CEO of The Village for Families and Children in Connecticut. And before that, he was the district director for Family Services of Greater Boston, where he worked to support and advocate for marginalized and underserved youth and their families. Howard received his Master of Social Work degree from the University of Michigan and has been a staunch supporter and advocate for underserved children and their families for many, many years. He's also a very proud father and grandfather, and just an all around lovely human being. I was excited to have him on, not only because of his vast professional wealth of experience and knowledge about the importance of parent support and early intervention for children, but also because he's just an excellent father and a proud grandfather. So without further ado, I am very excited to bring you my dear friend, Howard Garval on a really good enough parent podcast. Stay tuned. Welcome back to a Really Good Enough Parent podcast. I'm so excited to have my next guest, Howard Garval, with us today. Welcome, Howard.
1: Hey, hi, Christine. I'm, How are you?
0: I'm good. It's really nice to see you again. Good. I was just saying before we started recording, you look 10, 15 years younger since you retired.
1: It's a good it's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well I yeah, yeah. Instead of getting older, I'm getting younger. That's so good. that's good.
0: I guess less yeah. stress in your life, huh? More
1: relaxed, yeah. Yeah, yeah the Some weight off my shoulders. Yeah. You
0: used to run some really big organizations, and you had a lot of families on your mind as you were doing that work, I imagine.
1: Yeah, and when I introduced myself and said I was the executive director or the CEO of Child and Family Service or my previous organization, they said, oh, that's a big job. That's a big organization, but I've only known big organizations in my social work career, so uh, I'm I wouldn't know what to do with a small organization. So I guess that's a good. <laughs> like one. You, you, know, but I don't. Yeah.
0: yeah, I specialize in small. That's been my life's work. Yeah. <laughs> so um, let's start back at the beginning. You, sure. um, I mean, you can share about your childhood. I'm a little curious about that, and also what led you to social work and specifically, you know, how you saw the need for child services and and how that, you know, affected you to go into it. What can you share about your your thoughts?
1: Sure, sure. Well, I'm uh, one of two sets of twins. My sisters were five years older. Um, One of them passed away my first week in Hawaii, sadly. Um, But uh, my parents, uh, uh, until they both, passed away. They, they were together. Um, they, uh, you know, gave us a, uh, a secure home. Um, they, they had their challenges at times. Um, and, uh, you know, but they, they did everything they could and they did their best. Uh, my mother was uh, abandoned by her father after her mother died when she was eight years old. And she and her two brothers were uh, grew up in orphanages um, for quite a while. And it was only more recently, maybe seven years ago, my when my mother died, that I made the connection that my mother was in an orphanage, and here I ended up working in child welfare, child services, child and family services. Um, it's probably no accident.
0: I would say not. <laughs> I
1: really consciously think about the connection until more recently yeah it's a
0: huge yeah. it's a huge point to how we are affected by things that we might not be aware of right so if you grew up with this awareness of orphanages right. and orphans even if you didn't really understand what it meant you were led to it i'm all goosebumpy right now that's amazing
1: yeah and, and my mother would say she hated her father and 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 perhaps she did um but um you know she she didn't get a lot you know i you know, she was eight years old by when her mother died. So if, if, if she was a more nurturing uh, parent or good enough parent, um, she only had eight years of her. So um, in, after my mother passed away, you know, I kind of realized that, you know, she did the best she could, but she didn't get a lot herself. And that's where I think a lot of parents are in this world. they, they didn't get much themselves um but they but uh when you love your children even if you don't necessarily know all the right things to do as a parent i believe that that's still that love still comes through um and i did okay considering <laughs> um my father was my father came from a more intact family and he he was you know, perhaps even more of the nurturing one than my mother, because she just didn't have it in her as much. Um, but they, uh, but yeah, there's a lot, uh, to learn from, you know, what, particularly what she experienced. And, uh, um, I give her credit for doing as much as she could and as well as she could, um, even if at times it fell short. Yeah
0: yeah so what drew you initially into social work because that was your
1: straight out of college that was your career you know i i didn't start out with that as a direction i i ended up uh being a high school spanish teacher (laughs) oh um my uh my mother's um younger brother who she adored who also passed away many years ago um he was a linguist And he taught English as a foreign language, and he spent a couple of years in uh, doing that in uh, uh, Vietnam and then in Thailand, uh, taught at the University of Michigan, um, uh, teaching other people how to teach English as a foreign language or second language. And then years later, moved to Fresno State University um, to continue that work. Um, But he married a woman from uh, Colombia, South America, and her name Yadira, and she just passed recently, in fact. And um, so I got to speak Spanish with her and uh, my uncle, and felt that it was something I was pretty good at. And so I applied to be a Spanish major and uh, went to college in New Jersey and became a Spanish teacher for four years. But I knew. After a couple of years, it wasn't what was fulfilling for me. Um, I loved the kids, but I didn't necessarily love the teaching of Spanish. Um, and I got trained by a social worker in the school, high school I was teaching in. And she was a executive director of a family counseling agency in New Jersey. And she trained a bunch of, te- of teachers in uh, group counseling. So that was my... Uh, beginnings of social work, but also of even clinical type work. And my last year at the high school, before I left, I co-led a group for troubled adolescents uh, with a bachelor's in social work woman. So she and I co-led this group, and it was really meaningful to me. And the executive director who trained me helped me look at schools of social work as a as a career path, um, for doing what I began to feel like I wanted to do, which at that point it was becoming clear that I wanted to be a clinical social worker. Um, so I ended up, uh, applying to social work schools, but I got into the university of Michigan school of social work, which is a great school of social work. I was very fortunate. Um, and it felt, uh, uh, like it was meant to be, because my uncle taught there years before. Um, so I, uh, I went there for two years and uh, got my master's in social work and came out and uh, used my Spanish in Boston. I got a job in Boston, uh, which I always loved living in New Jersey. I had been to Boston and loved New England. I uh, felt like it was more home than New Jersey. And uh, my first job was as a Spanish speaking caseworker, they wanted a bilingual uh, caseworker. So I was doing a lot of work in the community, counseling uh, of families and individuals uh, from Puerto Rico, from Cuba, from uh, Colombia, from Peru, from Mexico, from various uh, Central and South American countries. Um, And I did that for uh, few months, um, and they, uh, decided they wanted to hire a bicultural bilingual Latina woman. And they did. And then they offered me a transfer to the South Shore office of of Boston. And I, uh, began to do straight counseling, uh, clinical counseling, clinical social work from that office. Uh, eventually, um, I, I actually initially started out doing some play therapy, um, but I was not really comfortable working with children in that format. Um, I felt like I didn't feel confident enough that I knew what I was doing and I didn't want to do any harm. Yeah, it's important. Uh, so Good for you. First rule, don't do any harm, okay. right? So uh, eventually I moved into doing mostly uh, adult counseling, some adolescent counseling couples counseling, but my favorite thing was doing group therapy with adults. Um, And then eventually I became a group treatment coordinator for the organization in Boston family service of greater Boston and eventually became a district director. So that was my first move into management, like a middle management job and had to do community outreach. To promote the organization and the community, which I loved, um, found that I really loved it. I even had to learn about real estate because we moved our offices. Uh, I supervised clinically the the staff as well, but I also reported to the Boston office. All of our all of the district directors uh, reported to the associate executive director, who oversaw all the counseling programs, um, at that time. So I got mentored by him a bit, um, and then I was about a year away from thinking about making another move, um, uh, to advance. And fortunately I was involved with an organization back then called Family Service America, a national organization. And they had a new England region and they had a representative from the Milwaukee organization. Uh, uh, representing New England. And he, he, uh, met me at conferences and he called me one day out of the blue. I'm sitting in my office in Quincy, Massachusetts, South shore office. He says, Howard, I got, uh, three jobs. I'd like you to take a look at, and I want to send your resume in for them. It's unheard of. You, that's never happened. I don't think that's ever happening anymore. Uh, unfortunately. Um, anyway, uh, that led to my uh, taking the job in Connecticut in Hartford, at the Village for Families and Children, and uh, they were a very very uh, strong uh, child welfare organization, and they were their origins were as an orphanage. Right back 1809. That's how old that organization was. Um, so from there, I got involved in. Leading uh, the adult and family counseling programs, family life enrichment. We had uh, some programs for the elderly. Um, you know, we had a variety of things, and I was in senior management at that point in time. Um, and uh, what I discovered, which I I think was kind of re- coming full circle to my being uh, active in the civil rights times, 1960s, civil rights, anti-Vietnam war time. um, I uh, gravitated back to advocacy and realizing that a lot of the things that the families we serve are dealing with are systemic issues that really can only be addressed on a policy level, public policy. So I became a very strong uh, advocate for better policies for children and families uh, in Connecticut uh, and did that for many years. Can we stop there for one second? Because
0: you've said so many things sure. I, I have questions about. One, I just want to sure. take a moment to acknowledge that play therapy is not just sitting in a room and watching kids play. So thank you for pointing out
1: that it takes true skill and commitment to sit in a room. And- it does. <laughs> and, and we're, we're doing yeah. that more here yeah. now. and I love play. Kids and that's fine. But when you, when you have a kid who's troubled and you also are supposed to hopefully help that kid, partly you're helping that kid just by being there and being a support. But yes, there are uh, specific skills and techniques for child play therapy that I was learning. I had some supervision but I never got comfortable with it.
0: Um, yeah, well, so thank you for pointing that out because I think there's a lot of yeah. misconception about what play therapy is. And having watched some incredible play therapy happen here at Pono Roots recently, I am I am gobsmacked about how effective an intervention it can be when done correctly. Yeah. Um, what can come out of a child in the right setting is, is profound. The other thing I'm I'm so excited to hear about and I'm curious about is, the advocacy and the awareness of systemic racism and inequity and all those things that can really not just affect an individual but can affect an entire family, an entire community. Um, And so when you were working with the population in Boston initially, um, you said you were working with a lot of immigrant folks from Central and South America. I'm curious if there was anything that sort of stuck with you about what might have been sort of a consistent cultural point of resilience, um, or if there's anything that you take away from that that people who aren't familiar with um, those communities might learn from you?
1: Yeah, well, you know I think I think what's what comes to mind when you ask that question is uh, what I you know I was very green as a I just came out of social work school. I had two field placements. I was in. Um, Detroit uh, for a field placement in the public schools. I did school social work as an intern in Detroit in the La- the strongest Hispanic or Latino neighborhoods there uh, because of my Spanish speaking. Um, and my second year, I was in Toledo, Ohio, in a family counseling agency where I really got to do uh, straight therapy and group group therapy um, in a more clinical setting. Um, But I was still green coming out of social work school. So um, I was uh, in that job for a short time in Boston. And really, uh, I learned so much culturally about both Central and South American cultures um, around uh, how they viewed uh, the notion of a social worker. they, they didn't see a social worker as a social worker. Um, they saw you as a friend of the family. And if you were visiting and doing a home visit with a family, uh, you, you really needed to understand that they, um, that some of the more traditional, maybe boundaries that we're trained to keep as social workers um in working with clients or uh, uh, whatever um, that 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 was not going to be effective culturally with these families that they needed to see me as someone who was a friend of the family who would come and eat with them, have coffee with them in their homes. Um, some yes, some did come to my office um, but, uh, you know, that was something that um, I learned right away was really important. Uh, and I each, even did some community uh, activism in the, at that time, the South End of Boston was a very large uh, Puerto Rican community. And so I did a lot of outreach in that community and got involved in community events. Um, even was in a, I was even in a play uh, and I played a white racist from the South um, in a, uh, a Latino play. It was a Spanish-speaking play, um, so uh, that was quite. An the experience. things we
0: do for our jobs when we're social workers, huh? <laughs> yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Because of everything. Thank
0: you for sharing that, because I think as we think of inclusion and diversity and equality more and more in our country, it's really important to while on the one hand, not stereotype or generalize about cultures, I also think we miss an opportunity when we don't acknowledge the specific, unique strengths uh, of a community. And I love hearing that, yeah, we we have certain boundaries and guidelines that we're trained with in our sort of Eurocentric, white, middle-class, you know, systems. But to say when you're working with a group, if you really want to meet them where they are at and connect with them. You you need to understand how they operate, and as a country, we want to look at all of this diversity as bringing different strengths to yeah. to our great country with so many cultures, right? So that's yeah. fascinating
1: to me. And I, you know, I'm encouraged. I mean, I, I'm encouraged and at times discouraged um, about pro- the progress made. I mean, um, for years we were just talking about diversity and that was okay, but it really wasn't enough. Um, and it wasn't enough to try to bring more diverse people into your organization or, or enough to kind of try to uh, celebrate diversity, which I think is important to do. But that's that alone, if it just stops there, that's really not enough. So I think the, the efforts to really uh, engage around equity and inclusion uh, not just diversity is really a positive step that I am encouraged by. Uh, the country is unfortunately taking some steps backwards in that direction, um, recently, and that's discouraging, um, uh, and more of the growth of white supremacy and things like that is scary, but also threatening that progress that has been made, um, so yeah, it's a, it's really an important issue and leading organization. One Hartford is a city of primarily of people of color. So I went there knowing that I was at least in many circles within Hartford, the city proper. I was a minority. I was uh, in groups where I was the only white person. Um, and I developed a comfort with that. Um, and I think it came from a, Experience I had the summer of my junior year of high school, where I got the good fortune of being able to attend a human rights conference, 1964, the heart of the civil rights movement in this country. And I was with people from all over the country. I was with, uh, I remember one of my roommates, uh, we were, it was at Princeton University. One of my roommates was an African-American man from the South who actually had been picked up by police and beaten. Uh, I had uh, long conversations with a Navajo uh, from Arizona who talked about the, the unfortunate challenge of Native Americans either staying on the reservations and keeping their culture or leaving, but then losing their culture. Um, and uh, there were Chicanos as well, who I got to meet and, and uh, learn more about. So I think I, uh, that experience was so powerful. I was like 16 that probably then. And so I, I think that helped me move into a city where uh, most of the people were people of color and be comfortable with that. And we had a lot of staff at the village for families and children in Hartford. A lot of our staff were people of color uh, Latino and um, West Indian, as well as African-American. Yeah, um, which so very comfortable. Right. With
0: that. So for parents listening, that's a very important
1: point is that you want to
0: make sure that you expose your child to the world and that you don't silo yeah. yourself and surround yourself only with people who have your same look and feel and demographic socioeconomic status that really to raise children who are going to change the world in a positive way. The children need to be comfortable with and exposed to all of humanity and i think it's yeah. impossible to dislike or fear someone when you get to know them even if you have exactly. really deep differences once you start talking to another human being in a way that's you know friendly and open minded it's not possible to harbor hate i don't think you know i think if you right. meet somebody it's it's not possible to really really dislike and fear them
1: yeah i mean i think if you look at the whole same-sex marriage evolution, I mean, it's over 70% now support it. And I think it happened because someone you knew was gay, lesbian, whatever. Uh, and so, you know, you began to really know someone and it's not being just a, a group. Um, and I think that, that does make a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah, you can't
0: other people once they become part of your tribe, right? Once you let them in, then they're yeah. no longer the other.
1: Well, and the other thing from a you know racial and ethnic perspective uh, for kids to be exposed is that you know we're the whites are going to be in a minority in this country, um, and Hawaii was a great experience for me because uh, we were not in the majority. Um, maybe there were too many whites at the top of organizations in Hawaii still, but. Um, but overall, population-wise, we were not, um, and there was technically no majority culture. That was fascinating to me. Um, so if parents don't help their children to be uh, have experiences where they're with people of different colors and races and ethnicities and so on, backgrounds, um, they're not preparing them for the world that's coming. Uh, and I think a lot of people are afraid of that world. But it's coming whether people are afraid or not. And parents, I think it would be important for parents to send the message. This is something to welcome, to learn from, to be open
0: and grow from. Change can be very scary when you have a fear-based mentality. But if you can be curious and open and ready for an adventure and, you know, just remember that it's not possible for one perspective to ever be complete. You need multiple perspectives to have a well-balanced anything. We don't just eat, you know, white bread to live. We need a full rainbow on our plate. You know, you need all the different yeah. foods to be healthy. And I think that's the attitude we want to have with culture and race and religion and all the things that scare
1: some people. And the other the other thing about uh, that, too, is that uh, there's good research that, that, you know, that shows within organizations that diverse teams make better decisions and get more, are more creative, more innovative. So there's some good reasons in organizations for that to happen as well. Yeah.
0: So with all of this knowledge that you um, developed over time as a professional person, then you became a parent. What can you yeah. share about your parenting experiences? I know your children are the pride yeah. of your life sure. and you've got grandkids oh, yeah. now. And-
1: we, have two, we have two daughters. They're now uh, 41 and almost 37. Um, and we're very proud of them. They're, they've grown up to be fine young women. Um, one is a mother and has three, our three grandchildren. Um, the other, we have a grand dog <laughs> uh, not sure if she'll have children, um, but they are, uh, are just, you know, what you hope as a parent, I think, is that you instill your values in your children. And most of all, it's the kind of person they grow up to be. And yes, we're glad that they're smart and, and they're, um, they've done well academically and they have done well professionally uh, and they're, you know, living relatively comfortably. Um, But more importantly, it's the kind of people they turn out to be. And that's that's for me as a parent is the thing I'm most proud of um, because I think they they're caring people. They're sensitive people. They're insightful. Uh, they're, uh, they are friendly, uh, no matter who you are, they are friendly to others. Um, they're accepting, uh, they're open-minded, um, those kinds of great values, I think. Um, so yeah, it's, that's, you know, that's been a great experience and it wasn't always easy. I, I, I would always say to, uh, in organizations and speaking to groups and, and things like that. Uh, parenting is the most important job on earth. And it's also the most difficult and you don't get a playbook. There's no recipe book that you can follow. Um, and you do your best based on what you've learned. But, but the good news is, even parents who haven't had good parenting can become Good enough parents; they really can. Um, And there are uh, things you can learn. There are there are helpers who can help you become that kind of parent. Um, And whatever. And and I think it's important that parents, not all parents, respond to the same kind of uh, learning about parenting. So there need to be a variety of of. Uh, ways parents can learn. So for example, there's a, an educational program called Parents as Teachers. Um, and some of that's done in home visiting, but some of it can be done in, in just classes with parents. And for some parents, that really works. They, they, it focuses on understanding child development and what's appropriate for kids at different ages of development and how parents uh, can then, re- what they should expect at different stages of development. So they have an understanding of how the child is growing and can hopefully respond well to that. For some parents, that's not, uh, they, don't, they can't translate that knowledge if they go through something like that to actually How do I deal with my child? So they need a a different approach, perhaps. So uh, for example, in Hartford, we created an Institute for Successful Parenting, and we adopted the common sense parenting model that came out of the girls and boys town of Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, Famously, the boys town of years and years ago, the Mickey Rooney movie and uh, Father Flanagan's Boys Town. And we found that in Hartford, in the inner city, the parents there were responding better to that model than they responded to the parents as teachers model. And in Connecticut, the parents as teachers model was working really well with white suburban families. Uh, So that kind of illustrates my point that, you know, not every approach to parenting is going to be as helpful to different parents, that uh, it's important to try to find one that really you feel actually you can use and and helps you in in, uh, raising your children.
0: And I think the thing to keep in mind is that every parent, even if the parent is misguided in their approach, believes they want their child to succeed okay maybe there are a few exceptions people who are really traumatized and unable to experience the love and the connection that they should feel as a parent but for the most part parents want their children to succeed and to be safe and to be healthy and it's at times to me a little mind-numbing the approaches that parents take to achieve that goal are often Mm -hmm. so ill-informed um and but again i think often coming from a place of fear and really sincerely wanting your child to be okay and if we can connect with that part of the parenting instinct which is i know you want what's best for your child so here's some psychoeducation on what's really happening right and as you said whether it's from a teacher sort of more academic perspective or more communal or more modeling or more you know therapeutic um but I think it's sure. so important for folks who are working with parents to really help parents understand what's happening in the child brain, because I think often parents forget what it felt like to be a child, and they prematurely age their children, and they fast forward them to a to a uh, neurological or brain state that isn't always
1: appropriate for a two-year-old or a three-year-old. They're not... They're not uh... Their brain hasn't matured enough, or they they don't they're not ready to be able to uh, do something that the parent thinks they should be able to do. It's too early in their development. Yeah, uh, that that can happen. That's right. Recently,
0: yeah. I read something about the uh, increase in anxiety and depression in children, which is horrifying. Yeah. That it's starting younger and younger. That you know the innocence yes. of childhood has been robbed from so many kids due to this hyper vigilance and over awareness and social media and fear-based, you know, things that are coming at them constantly. And
1: um, And the the, pandemic, I think, had an impact
0: there as well. And the innocence of childhood. Somehow we've started to see innocence as a bad thing for children. We want them to grow up really fast. But the reason that children need that innocence bubble is so that they can do the important brain and social-emotional developing that has to take time.
1: You can't speed through that. And so it's the foundation. And if if they have a weak foundation... How do you grow healthy from a weak foundation? If it's if you had a house with a bad foundation, that house is going to f- fall apart. So yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So give them that childhood, that slow, gentle, innocent childhood filled with occasional, you know, moments of boredom and whatever. Go out and play in the yard. And-
1: parents, really, uh, I think uh, I I really um, you know. I, I have such sympathy for parents today because they have so many challenges for younger children and moving into adolescence. That uh, when I was a parent, they, they uh, when I would, when our children were younger, I didn't have to deal with some of those influences. And uh, so it's really almost you don't want to get hyper vigilant, but you you do want to at least be healthy vigilant. I guess is the word because of all the young children can be exposed to and not not necessarily healthy things they can get exposed to that that really uh uh they they should be uh, protected from
0: yeah so we need to be a little more hyper vigilant but quietly in a way that the kids aren't picking up on by protecting That's them from things but we don't want the kids to be right. um to be that way and yeah it is very difficult to parent in the face of all that the kids are exposed to nowadays
1: And, you know, the other thing that uh, I think is uh, no matter what age kid, uh, you got to have a sense of humor with kids, especially with kids Um, and tease them and play with them and um, and giggle. And and really, uh, you know, you know, the aspect of play therapy that makes sense is that, you know, kids, the younger children, you know, they can't verbalize what they're feeling. And so play becomes their vehicle for that. Um, But uh, humor can go a long way in, uh, you know, helping a child with anxiety or, uh, you know, with strong emotional feelings. Um, But it's really important that whatever those feelings, good or bad, happy, sad, angry, uh, fearful, whatever, that all of those feelings are normal feelings for kids to have. And parents, you know, need to um, uh, teach. That's where teaching the parent as a teacher really does come in, is teaching kids that that's okay that you're upset right now, you're mad or, you know, you're frustrated or whatever. Um, Or even it's okay if you're scared. Um, uh, The message needs to be you're... It's okay if you're scared, but you can still do things even if you're scared.
0: Yeah, that's really important. I think, you know, making emotional health part of the conversation, you know, not covering up when people are having a bad day, not, you know, soldiering on and putting on a happy face when inside you're a mess, you know, and like you said, parents have to model that. And I think one of the hard things is parents... Uh, maybe often feel that they need to be perfect, and they need to not have any, you know, of the bad days or mistakes uh, uh, visible to their kids. But that's where the most yeah, important—that's
1: the lost is. cause. <laughs> that's the lost cause to be perfect uh, in in anything, but but as a parent, especially. Um, and you know, you're. I don't think kids escape childhood without some. Uh, struggles and, and issues. But if they know that you're at least there and you care and you'll support them through those issues, that can make a big difference. Uh, our two daughters had struggles when they were uh, adolescents. And uh, you know, fortunately, as they moved into their 20s, uh, I think they uh, really uh, were able to Come to terms with things, and uh, and you know they they got through that, and and sometimes I think parents don't recognize that kids will grow up, they'll they'll get over some things that they think they worry will be forever, and that's not necessarily the case.
0: Yeah, and often we make it worse by overreacting in the moment, and as you said, yeah. forgetting yeah. that this is probably a very important phase they're going through. And that individuation and minor rebellion and figuring out who you are and pushing away from your parents so that you can be yourself and not be a, you know, small version of your parents. It's a very important part of... Different
1: different different parents struggle with different, I'm sorry, different parents struggle at different ages. So some with the early childhood stuff and some when the teenage years and they're trying to separate and become their own individuals and... um, and the parent doesn't want to let go, but has to let go to some degree. And what's the right balance? Uh, You don't want to let go too much, but then, and you still, you know, even adolescents need limits. Um, But you also, you know, if you're over-controlling, you're going to get more rebellion than you would normally get. You're going to get rebellion because it's part of adolescence, but but it's going to be worse if you're over-controlling. Um, and, uh, so, yeah, I also watch my, I'm a grandparent now, and we have the three, uh, grandchildren who are, uh, almost eight, uh, five and almost three, uh, two boys and then a girl. And they're wonderful. I mean, it's just being a grandparent is the, the best thing on earth because you don't have the responsibility of raising them, but you can just love them. And and be be in their lives in a in a positive way, um, and I watch our daughter, who uh, fortunately she's a um, has a uh, she's a masters in child uh, child uh, education, uh, childhood education. So she this is something she knows pretty well, but um, I don't think it's just that she uh, she's a wonderful mother, and uh, it's a joy to watch her. And um, the kids love her and uh, for good reason. And um, one of the things that she does so well um, is she gives them choices. Um, And so she avoids a lot of power struggles that, you know, the terrible twos or whatever. Uh, She avoids the power struggles by giving them choices. Uh, And she sets limits, but not in any, never in a harsh way. Just in a very matter-of-fact way, yeah. um, and uh, and if uh, uh, there's something they've done wrong, she's not unwilling to say. I think you need a timeout right now. Yeah. Why don't you go up to your room, and when you're ready to, when you feel like you're uh, calmed down a bit, uh, you, you can come back down and play. But but uh, she's not unwilling to do that if it's uh, if it you know, if a child is really needing that level of, uh, 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 discipline, if you will.
0: Consequences Uh, matter. And if I could just say about the choices, because I've talked about choices before on the podcast, there's a, I'm sure what your daughter is doing, knowing you and how you raised her and her background is she's giving appropriate choices. And I think what that speaks to is the child's desire to participate and for their voice and their unique perspective to be honored and seen and acknowledged. Um, So appropriate choices in limited amounts is probably what your daughter's doing. My concern for some parents that I witness is giving their kid way too many choices. So the child feels unmoored and there's no structure and there's no sense of the parents are in charge and I'm safe. It's like, you know, I could make up anything right now and they would have to figure out how to manage that. And then we maybe get nowhere because then I'm asking for something I can't have, you know, or I don't know. Do you want. 16 cereals, here's 16 options, which one do you want? That's too much for a kid, right? Or what do you Uh, want to do today? Maybe too open-ended. So just to clarify on the choices, um, I do think what your daughter is doing sounds wonderful and just that little sort of warning about how we introduce choices.
1: Yeah, and it's like so much, I think, in parenting is finding that uh, sweet spot that's not over- overly done and not underdone because kids do need structure. They need limits. Uh, they may fight, they'll fight the limits often, but they do need that. Uh, we know that that's true about kids growing up because they're not gonna go into, into a world uh, where there's no structure, where, there's, where there are no rules or expectations uh, they need to be prepared, and when they go to school, there's there's structure. There, you know, even in uh, classrooms that might be a little bit more um, open than than the typical classroom, mm-hmm. there's still some structure and yeah. rules that that kids are expected to follow and, and behave. Yeah. And if you don't don't uh, if kids don't learn that at home. It's so much harder in school, um, but if they get it both places, then they're prepared to be an adult in our in our world.
0: Yeah, well, we're almost out of time. Do you have any sure. final thoughts or tips or things you wish you had well, done or I done?
1: Think, yeah, I, I think um, for I think I would say parents need to be really um, not so hard on themselves. Uh, they can't be perfect. They're going to make mistakes. Um, they can even say, I, "I'm sorry" to their children when they've done something that really wasn't the best form of parenting, if you will. Maybe they lost their temper or, or whatever. Um, and I think we have to be—we're human. We have to be, uh, you know, c- good to ourselves, kind to ourselves, and not uh, overly be overly critical of our ourselves as parents. Um, and, uh, but also it's good to recognize when perhaps you didn't do something as well as you would have liked. And it's not too late to, you know, to make that up. Kids are resilient. Um, and you can, you can make up with them and, and, uh, uh, it'll be like it never happened.
0: Yeah,
1: um, that's true. So nothing, Going to be lasting in that respect. You're forgiving, yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, this has been really fun. Thank you so much, Howard. Say hello to your wife.
1: Oh, no, I will. And it's been great to talk with you and see you. Yeah, thanks. We'll talk soon. Bye bye. Bye bye.
0: This has been another episode of a really good enough parent podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd leave me a rating or subscribe. Subscribing helps boost my ratings, and rating me obviously helps boost my ratings, but only if you liked what you heard. But apropos that, whether or not you do or don't like this, I really do like feedback. So please drop me a line if you'd like. Let me know if there's someone you want me to interview or a certain topic you'd like me to tackle. You can find out more about a really good enough parent podcast on the Pono Roots website at ponoroots.org. That's p-o-n-o-r-o-o-t-s.org. Pono Roots is a nonprofit program, and if you wish to support our work, donations are always welcome. And with that, I'll leave you a quote from Carl Jung, and something that my children remind me of every day. You are what you do, not what you say you'll do. Thank you. Take care. Aloha. George loves Detroit.